Turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, and I would like to read verses 7, 8, and 9, the last three verses of this chapter. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I'll bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. What some wonderful verses there. We won't get to those. In fact, I don't think we'll get through all of verse 7 tonight. Because there's so much said in this passage of scripture. Awake, O sword. Now, as we look at this, we'll find that if something is called on to awake, it probably is asleep. And when we look at this sword, we're going to find out that this sword has been sheathed or asleep for a very long time. The covenant of grace determined that there would be this sword, and we're going to use it as a metaphor for the justice of God. And that justice of God is going to be held for centuries. It's going to be held in eternity. The sword has been asleep for an eternal duration until it is called on to come out of the sword and do its job. That it was it was sheathed and set to the side. The day would come when it shall be and when it was used. Now this sword is shattered through much of the Old Testament. We find the very first time, if you turn with me to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 3, there's a shadow here. It doesn't tell us exactly how the Lord dealt with this, but it does tell us something about what the Lord did. And when we're dealing with Genesis, just like any other book of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, God is the first cause of all things. He's the first cause to show redemption. He's the first cause to share redemption. He's the first cause that covers and shares with us the need for imputed righteousness. In the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we have after the fall, now that did not caught catch the Lord offsides. It didn't catch the Lord wondering. It didn't catch the Lord anything. He knew exactly. He was predetermined before the foundation of the world of all the things that were going to be carried out. He purposed that this would take place. And so it says here, um, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothed them. Now, it doesn't tell us how the Lord did that. It doesn't tell us I'm convinced because of the types that it, it's uh, throughout the rest of the scripture that they, these were, were uh, sheep that he used to cover uh, these people. It doesn't tell us how he went about it, but we do find out that there was a, a, a picture of the sword that was going to be used many centuries later there at the cross. This sword of justice would be wielded and placed in the very sheath of the heart of the Lord Jesus. Now, it isn't very far 
If you'll turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4. It says here, there were some instructions given. Uh, and we find out instructions were given to Jacob and to Esau. Instructions were given to uh, uh, to the people throughout the scriptures, the same instructions are given. That's one thing. We don't change the gospel for this group and then have a different gospel for this group. The instructions are always the same. And the instructions that were given to Cain and to Abel were exactly the same. Someone, no doubt Adam, led by the Spirit, taught his sons about the gospel. And to one, it was effectual. God used it to be effectual. He, he brought him out of darkness to his marvelous light. And the other, it didn't care. He was not given that light. And it says here in the book of Genesis chapter 4 and verse 4, And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect on Abel and upon his offering. Now by the word offering is more than just, Lord, here's a sheep. We're going to have a burnt offering here. And he is demonstrating the knowledge that he has about being a sinner. And talking to that gentleman on Monday, I said in religion, I knew I had done wrong against my mother and my dad and my brothers, but I did not know until I heard the gospel and the Lord gave me salvation that I had sinned against a holy God. That, and it was more than with my hands and my feet and my mouth. It was my heart. Uh, enmity with God. So here's a place that Abel was, the same condition that everybody else is in, and yet God gave him grace. He was able to demonstrate that. And in some way he demonstrated, here's a picture of that sword. Justice must be paid. Justice must be meted out. Payment must be made. Innocent must die for the guilty. And all of this is going to be played out throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. In the book of Genesis chapter 8, we see here that Noah built an altar after that great judgment of God upon this world. In Genesis chapter 8, something after the flood, in verse 20, it shares this. It says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He, re he took the life of those different and various animals in some manner, he took the life of them and demonstrated the innocent is going to be required to die for the guilty. Noah was guilty, just as everyone else that, that suffered that great flood. He was just as guilty as they were when it came to sin against God. But God said, you have found grace in my eyes. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Therefore, I am going to demonstrate what it takes to save people. There must be an ark. You must be in it. I must close the ark. You must ride out the storm, what you will. And then afterwards, we find he offered these sacrifices to demonstrate that he was a sinner. And here's the innocent taking care of the sinful. The justice of God must be performed. God cannot cannot save us just because he loved us, even if it wasn't eternal love. Something must be done with sin. It must be paid for. If we're to ever see God on good terms, sin must be paid for. And he is just and justifier. 
These things are going to meet and he is going to be happy with the outcome. But this sword must be wielded. And then if we travel just a little further into the book of Genesis chapter 22, we read here about Abraham. Abraham is asked to do something that very few people have ever been asked to do, particularly in scripture. Now we know, because we know the end of the story, we know, and I believe, well, Abraham understood if he had to go ahead and take his son's life, they both were going to come off of that mountain anyway. He believed in the resurrection. So in going up there, we find here in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, the scriptures say this, and he said, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now we're going to read here that there's going to be, there's going to be wood, there's going to be fire, but did you know that Abraham is carrying one other thing? He's carrying a knife. Because he's going to tell us here in verse 26 of this chapter. Now, I just believe that this is what Abel used. I believe this is what Noah used. I believe this is what we're going to find as in Abraham's case that we're going to have here in Genesis 22. Six. Six. Thank you. Genesis 22, six. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went up, both of them, together. So here we have that, that sword. Awake, O sword. Now Abraham is going to demonstrate that he awakens that sword. He may carry it in a sheath all the way up to that mountain. And he may carry it in a sheath as he prepares the sacrifice. But we're going to find out here that Abraham... What is that? In verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So all the way up here, we have that knife sheathed. That knife is asleep. That knife is going to be awakened. And that knife is drawn out of its sheath. And Abraham was prepared to plunge it into his son. Now we know the rest of the story. Abraham didn't know that as we look back, but he found it out. There is a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and that ram becomes a sacrifice. Now where did that knife go? It was plunged into that sacrifice, and Abraham offered that sacrifice instead of his son. Well, we find that the very picture, types and shadow here of that knife that sword, that sacrifice had to be carried out. And then, my friends, when we get to the book of Exodus, we get to the book of Leviticus, we get to the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, how many times do we find that that sword was unsheathed? This, not this, the sword we read about in Zechariah, but a typical sword, a typical knife, a typical uh, piece of equipment that was drawn out by the high priest and slew all those animals. They did not take away sin. It was impossible for them to take away sin, but we're going to have a type and a shadow of picture here of a sword that is going to be awakened. The pictures of the Passover, they slew the lamb, and they put it out there and burned and 
consume or uh, uh, for eating. And Leviticus and number, even the book of Ezekiel talks about sacrifices. And I've had people tell me that's going to be during the millennial reign. He's not talking about that. He's just saying this is how God does his business. He is going to raise a sword up against the innocent. And here's a picture and a type and a shadow of it. The number of times like Zechariah is doing reminds us of a time coming from Zechariah's point. Now he's writing about 400 or 450 years before the time of Christ. He, is, he was there at the building of that temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The children of Israel had been set free from Babylonian captivity. Many, of, many came back, about 50,000 came back. They're in building of that temple. And when Cyrus said, the, there's going to be from the time that Cyrus commanded that they rebuild that temple to the coming of the Lord, we can lay pins in the ground. Now, those people understood it a whole lot better than us, and I'm not going to try to guesstimate all that that means. But there were pins laid in the ground, and Zechariah is prophesying here of the glory of the sacrifice of the Son of God because the sword of God's justice is truly going to take care of sin once and for all time. In Isaiah 53, the picture is so brought out there, about 40 times in 12 verses do we have this reference to he and him, Jesus Christ, in the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah alone. He shall, now we'll come back here in just a little bit, but the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah is speaking about the Lord of glory. And it's longer before the time of Christ than Zechariah was. We have this, these beautiful pictures coming along. And then it tells us there, going back to the book of Zechariah chapter 13, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Let's look at that again as we move into the New Testament into some of the verses that are there. In the book of Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7, it says, Awake, O Lord, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. Now, there is a relationship between the shepherd of the sheep and someone that is a companion to the Godhead, my fellow. This fellow is someone that is close companionship. There's a shepherd of the sheep, but we also have a companion to the Godhead, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this passage of Scripture, the Lord brings up. You know, I was reading today... Uh, Someone that wrote about Zechariah said, you know, there's no reason that anybody would ever doubt the authenticity of the book of Zechariah because of the number of times that are brought out directly in the New Testament. Well, we've said that way a long time ago, that book of Zechariah is authenticated because God gave it by his spirit. And then it's authenticated because we read verses of scripture in the New Testament that are quoted from it. We don't have to worry whether it's in the Bible or not. It's there because God intended for it to be there. But let's turn over here to the book of Matthew chapter 26. And for just a moment, read this passage of scripture that the Lord brings up in a quote from the book of Zechariah chapter 13. And there in verse 7, and it's found in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, and there in verse 31, we have these words. Then saith Jesus unto them, he's speaking to his disciples, 
all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written. Zechariah chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 7. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31, Thus saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended. Now, I don't know how you feel about these people and him telling them that, but afterwards they understood what he's talking about. It is interesting that all but one, when Jesus said, One of you is going to betray me, all but one understood it could be them. Is it I? Is it I? One person, like those on the left-hand side, can't be me. Can't be me. A believer understands if we're not kept by the hand of God. There's very little, and I've mentioned this several times, but it's just something that I've been thinking about a great deal. There's very little difference between what Judas did and what Peter did, and the only difference is grace. I have prayed for you because of grace. I've prayed for you. I pray not for the world, but I pray for you, Peter. I don't pray for Judas. I pray for you. And how glorious it is to have the God of heaven pray for us. All right, it goes on to tell us here in this verse of Scripture, you shall all be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Now we notice that this happens. Every one of those disciples run, leave, deny, everything else. We put Peter on a, out there and say, look what Peter did. Look what everyone else did. Look what we would have done. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had this road to walk alone. He could not have anybody saying, I helped. <laughs> what error it is for people to say, I have helped God. What glory it is to know He has helped us. We love Him because He first loved us. We have that glorious representation that the Lord has on our behalf. Now the sword had been for so many ages sleeping. You know, we don't find... We don't find, and we'll never see, the exceeding sinfulness of sin at Mount Sinai. It identifies that we are unholy, that it shares with us that we are sinners, but we will never see the exceeding sinfulness of sin at Mount Sinai. Turn with me. I'd like to read just a few verses in 2 Corinthians and then in the book of Hebrews along this line. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'd like to begin reading with verse 7. But if the menstruation of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the menstruation of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the menstruation of condemnation be glory, much more doth the menstruation of righteousness exceed glory. So we'll never be able to see everything that we need to see in the law. The law was never intended for us to see the glory of the Lord. We were never intended for us to see 
righteousness. Now, we're going to find someone who kept the law perfectly, who is righteous, but we're unable to do that, and we're thankful that he imputes that righteousness to us. Even after we're saved, we cannot keep the law. After God has saved us by his grace, we're still sinful people. We cannot keep it. And the more we say that we are keeping it, the more we're betraying our very own selves. All right, for verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that exalteth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. So if the law is going to be done away and there's a bit of glory about that, how much greater is the glory of the Lord? Well, it doesn't take us much to find out how much more glorious it is. Now let's turn over to the book of Hebrews and read there just a little bit about Moses on that mount and coming down and what had to be taken and what that was a sign of. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Now when Moses came off of that mountain, he, he, came, into a, he came into a scene he wished he hadn't seen. He came into a scene which he wished had never happened. But it happened. And he broke this law threw it down and broke it and had to go back up and get the get, get it again. He was, a, he was put out, just mildly put out over the people. For ye are not come to mount that might be touched that burned with fire, might be touched that burned with fire, nor with blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they had heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart or, or spear. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That's Moses. But ye are come to Mount Zion. And the, unto the city of the living God, and to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels. So here we are. We have come to this. God has brought us home, brought us to Zion, brought us to a city of refuge, brought us to Christ. And the, there in Second Corinthians, if we would have read a little further, we would have read that the same teaching of the Old Testament is a veil to the eyes until they see Christ. And then the veil is taken away. The only way we can see the exceeding sinfulness of sin is to see the agony to read. And in our mind's eye, by the inspiration of the Spirit about those passages of Scripture, is to see what Christ paid to redeem His people from sin. To go to the cross. To go to the agony of the cross. To go to the agony before the cross. Here we find that as justice was going to be served and payment was going to be made to hear the very groans of our Savior. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I'm glad they interpreted it because it means a whole lot more. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the cry of the Son of God. This is the cry of the fellow of the Lord of hosts. The friend of of the Lord of hosts. This is the Son of God crying this out to God. The sword of God's justice was unsheathed and sheathed in the person Christ Jesus. Justice must be meted out. 
if there's going to be ever salvation, if we're ever going to be delivered from our sin, from our very nature, then justice must be meted out. Sin must be paid for. Now in the covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ came forward voluntarily, knowing full well he was able to do what was required to do, and he wanted to do it for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. It was a great joyful thing for him to do this, and yet it was great agony in doing it. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 22 and verse 14. Psalm 22 and verse 14. We have these words, as it were, the very words of the Lord. Psalm 22 and verse 14. The very words of the Lord as He is paying the price of our sin debt. He says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. You ever had sore knees? <laughs> All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Now this is as the Lord himself is declaring the agony. Now we get the representation over there in the Old Testament when they took that sacrifice and they prepared it and laid it on the altar and consumed it with fire. That was symbolic, that was typical, that was pictorial of what Christ must do in order to take care of our sin. Now the blood of and flesh of animals did not take away sin. All the offerings that were ever performed throughout the Old Testament, and we even find out up until the time of Christ's death, some 20 times in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the Passover mentioned. His parents went to it. He went to it. And we find Christ is our Passover. So we have that mentioned, this picture. He witnessed the picture of himself when he went to the Passover. His parents went to the witness, picture of the, the death of the Son of God when they witnessed the Passover and everyone else too. Every believer that ever stood there and observed what was going on that day, they observed the picture, the type and the shadow of what was required. That priest took that offering and slew that offering and caught some blood and then consumed that sacrifice in a burnt offering. Well, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ crying out, what is able to melt wax? Now, it doesn't take much to melt wax, but what is able? We read about the fire of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, we read these words about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says here, as this whole chapter is such a declarative uh, statement about the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what was required in order to redeem his people, and that sword was awakened as typical pictorially here physically we can see it or spiritually i should say we'll see that sword pulled out on the day of the crucifixion when jesus christ actually the time is right when he goes to the cross at the appointed time he 
that sword is brought to his attention, the justice of God. Here, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on his fellow, on him. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every elect person. Their iniquity, their sin has been laid upon him. And we read the rest of this. He was oppressed. It doesn't take much, if we have any understanding of even the English language, to find out that there was some great transaction going here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. This was what he intended to come for. He never came to set up a kingdom. He came to lay down his life, a ransom for many. When we get into the book of uh, Matthew chapter 27, there was great darkness upon this earth for the space of three hours. During that period of time, justice was served. God poured out His wrath on sin that was laid on Him. And Jesus Christ paid completely and fully for all our sin. Now it was not swept under a rug. It was not put somewhere. It was paid for in full. That's why there is no longer any guilt. He took our guilt. We're sinners, but He took our guilt. He took the payment. It was imposed. It was brought out. He is the one who had promised to pay the debt. In the book of Mark, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 15 if you would. Mark chapter 15, as we see this sword is awoken. This sword is unsheathed. The justice of God is unsheathed. Picture after picture throughout the Old Testament through the intermediate period between Malachi and And the book of Matthew, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see this picture, we see this picture, we see this picture of justice. And now, here in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin reading there with verse 15, Mark chapter 15 and verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus whom he had scourged when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now there was there there wasn't a bargain going on here. God purposed Barabbas to be released. God purposed his son to take the place. It is certainly a picture of substitution, one for the other, the innocent for the guilty. But when it comes down to it, we're all Barabbases. And he took the place of every Barabbas goes on to say, and the soldiers led him away to the hall called Praetorium, and they uh, called together the whole band. And in, in verse 24 of that chapter, it says this, And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them that they, every man should take. And so they crucified him. We're not going to go into the pain of crucifixion. The payment was made in those three hours. He was the one lifted up. If I be lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will take care of all the sin debt and draw all mine to me. 
in verse 33 of that chapter. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now you want to read about the sword being awakened. We have a three hour period here when it was unsheathed. The sword of God's justice. The payment price was made. Now we're not saying that there wasn't any of that going on before that, but here it is. I wonder how long it took to consume one of those heifers in the Old Testament on an altar. Three hours? I don't know. But that was a picture of what took place right here. There's payment being made. That payment could not pay for anything. This payment is going to be effectual and pay for the sins of all his people in all ages. Past, present, and future. Everything. Not one is left over. Not one is to be found. And then if we look in verse 34 of that chapter, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice in, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, and thank God, I love it, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My, he's, God could say, he's my fellow. I have wakened the sword for my fellow. And then of that same chapter, verse 37, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. You know what he said? That's recorded in John 19 and verse 30. It is finished. It is finished. Now, turn with me back to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. We went over this some time ago, but I want to read it and make just a couple of comments here. In religion, I was taught that uh, verse 10 of chapter 12. Yes, uh, I was taught that everybody eventually at the judgment were going to look upon him whom they had pierced. And you know what? That's not true. Only the church pierced Christ. Nobody else. Nobody on the left-hand side ever laid a hand on him. No sin was ever applied. Nothing. So they're not going to look on him whom they pierced. They're going, we look on him whom we pierced. That's where we see the total payment for our sin. What's it say? I will pour upon the house of David, verse 10, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. My goodness, we got off to a good start. And of and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. What does that mean? We put him there. My sin put him there. God's justice came out and struck him. Abraham was prepared to do that. I can just see his hand raised. So God stopped him from doing it. Now, God did not stop justice from being meted out here. He did not stop the sword of justice. It was awakened. It was going to do its job. Where is it now? Put away. No longer ever going to be brought out again. And it goes on to tell us there, they mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that... In bitterness for his firstborn. 
So, it is finished. We look upon him whom we have pierced, among many, many other things that were fulfilled that day. That day. Justice was served. Now that justice is going to be served. Uh, I, I read yesterday, there is eternal damnation, just as there is eternal life. Those without Christ, it's eternal damnation. They are damned, they will be damned, and they will forever be damned. And the same for the, the opposite for the church is everlasting life, everlasting covenant, everlasting forgiveness, everlasting love. Ever... There's no end to it. And so it's because the sword was awakened. Oh, awake, O oh sword. And this sword would be for the fellow, my fellow, of the Lord of hosts. Jehovah's fellow would do this. Now he's God Almighty, put on a cross, had sin imputed to him, never lost his character or nature, and he did exactly what he promised he would do in the covenant of grace. I will ransom all my elect. And when he said it's finished, he did that very thing. He bowed his head, he died, and when they came to him, he was so different than everyone else that had ever been crucified. He died so soon because he did his work. And they took him down without breaking a leg. And the rest of them wasn't so kind. Well, we're thankful that this one Jesus had a sword raised up against him, a sword that will never touch any of the elect. It will touch those who are on the left-hand side for eternity. Justice will be served. We'll stop there and we'll pick up the latter part of that verse uh, next week and then try to finish the chapter. There's so much in that chapter. And then get to chapter 14 maybe someday. <laughs> All right.